Amen. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Years ago, when I was uh, advisor in the student activities office at Texas A&M University, um, I had a young man come and speak to me. You see, Texas A&M University had a freshman orientation program called Fish Camp. It, it had started back when the university was just a college and was an all-male military school, and they called it Fish Camp because that's how they referred to freshmen at Texas A&M, as fish. And so Fish Camp became a very preeminent orientation program. And the summer prior to encountering this student, um, or excuse me, what I was trying to say is the student, the freshmen go to camp on the summer prior, prior to becoming freshmen. So one day this young man comes and finds me. He was a very popular young man. I knew his name. I knew about him. Uh, he had been selected as a student fish camp director. And each camp, sequence of camps, and there were usually about five or six in the summer, uh, had subcamps, seven of them. And each subcamp had student, two student directors and several student counselors. Well, he was one of the student directors. So um, one of the most pre, you know, prestigious invitations someone could be given was um, to be asked to be a campfire speaker at fish camp, which meant at the end of the day, each day, they would go out and have a campfire and someone would give an inspirational speech to these freshmen who were getting ready to start college. So near the end of the fall semester that year, this young man found me in my office in the student activities building and, and after briefly uh, chatting, asked if I would be one of the campfire speakers for his camp. Well, I was humbled and honored all at the same time and I quickly said yes. Then as the spring semester was drawing to a close and, and though they had been working and planning for fish camp all academic year long, things really began to ramp up. And the young man came and found me again. This time I was in the break room of our office. He seemed troubled and I invited him to sit down but he declined. He was a tall young man and since I was sitting, he stood there um, sort of towering over me and he said, I hear from some students that you don't believe that the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. Is that true? I was surprised at his question, shocked actually, and mumbled something about Jesus being my way, but I didn't necessarily think that Jesus was the only way. He then quoted me part of the passage we heard just now. For God so loved the world as to give his only son that whosoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Believes being the operative word. And then he asked, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Are you saved? Well, I didn't actually respond. I just kind of looked at him. I, I was taken aback. And then he said angrily, I couldn't possibly have you as our campfire speaker if you don't even believe in Jesus as the one true way 
and aren't saved, you can consider yourself uninvited. And he left. I have remembered that conversation on and off and the questions he asked me countless times in the years that have followed. But I have to tell you, I wonder if are you saved is the right question. You see, I believe that the gospel reading we just heard has been used for just this kind of exclusion for many years and for many people. And in fact, I think the grand exodus from the Christian faith in the United States of America right now is due to this kind of interpretation of this scripture. And this kind of reading of the scripture has done more damage to the understanding of what Christianity is really all about, probably than any other. So let's consider what the gospel really has to say to us about Jesus, about God, about salvation and eternity, shall we? There is, of course, in this passage of Scripture, heartache and the certainty of the gospel blues moan. And, you know, let's remember that in the genre of the blues that was born out of black spirituals and birthed other genres such as jazz and hip-hop, there's always some truth-telling. And the truth-telling is always about the pain of the world. Reverend Otis Moss III has told us that there is something very important to learn from the blues, something very important to learn about our faith. There is a willingness in the blues to paint a portrait that dares to show the ugly tragedy that is held in the lives of ordinary women and men. And we're hearing some of that today in our reading. And we're hearing it repeated over and over by voices who would tell us that this scripture is about judgment and exclusion. So let's unpack this, shall we? There's so much here. I want to set the scene for you. You see, shortly after Jesus' street theater action in the Jerusalem temple, where he turned tables and drove um, people out of the temple, a Jewish religious leader by the name of Nicodemus visits Jesus by cover of darkness. Nicodemus has begun to suspect that Jesus is in fact come from God, but is not completely convinced yet. Nicodemus has questions about what Jesus means by being born anew or born from above. You see the Greek there can take either of those, born anew or born from above. This is an experience that Jesus actually refers to as being born of the Spirit. At this late night encounter um, and in the conversation, Jesus' words are an attempt to explain his identity and mission to a very well-educated, well-versed Pharisee in the Jewish tradition. In fact, considered a religious leader for all the people. Now, this week's reading includes one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, John 3.16. I mean, it is probably one of the few that many people can recite from memory. And for all its familiarity, this verse is frequently misunderstood, partly because there's so much here to unpack. 
the great German Reformed theologian Martin Luther called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. But like any summary, the summary and the miniature nature of this one verse requires us to ask ourselves, how do we understand God's love? How do we understand God's justice? And how are they interrelated? As Israelites wandered in the wilderness, there are dozens and dozens of stories in Exodus and Numbers describing the people complaining and rebelling along the way. Now, I want to tell you, I'm going to reference two Hebrew stories talking about what Jesus has talked about in the Gospel of John. And the first is about the serpent being lifted up. Now, that's a a vague reference for those of us that are not well-grounded in our Hebrew scriptures. The other is about the reference of the only begotten one or God's son. So let's start with the first one. In the Hebrew scriptures, in Exodus and Numbers, um, people were complaining and complaining and rebelling in the wilderness as they were making their way out of Egypt and into the promised land. I mean, they started from the very beginning. And this is the passage in Numbers that Jesus is alluding to. You see, the people have gotten to a point where they're speaking against God and Moses, and they're hungry and they're impatient. The Israelites are ungratefully described in the Exodus as bringing bringing us out of the wilderness to die. That's what they say to Moses. You're bringing us out. of. We might as well have stayed in Egypt. We're going to die out here. And so God sends, now here's where your toes are going to curl a little bit. So God sends poisonous, deadly serpents to slither among them, wreaking havoc and death. Now, I know this doesn't seem like the God that you know, but what we need to remember is that ancient people are telling this story and trying to make sense of how God works. And so, with all these snakes slithering around and biting people and people getting sick and dying, the people promptly confess and say, we're so sorry. We've sinned. Please help us. And God directs Moses to fashion a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole and to hold it up so that any Israelite who's bitten by the serpents can look at the serpents of bronze and live. This is odd for us, isn't it? Until you think about our living today. If you've done any work in therapy, you know that um, our health and growth only comes when we're able to look at the demons, when we're able to face our dragons, when we're able to look up and see what is biting us. Both in Numbers and in John, there are indications that the negative consequences described in these stories are less divine punishments and more aspects of ourselves. 
our destructive nature to sin, to turn away from God, to miss the mark. In Numbers, the Israelites' complaints complaints themselves are poisonous, bitter, and self-contradictory. Given manna to eat daily to keep them alive, the people say, there is no food. We detest this miserable food. And in John, Jesus casts those who do not believe in him as afflicted with self-sabotaging desire to stay in the shadows. Now, I want to remind you that that word believe is what we get from the Greek, but if we go back to the Hebrew, the word believe is more rightly translated trust, trust in Jesus. And they and we are afflicted by this self-sabotaging desire to stay in the shadows. In this sense, we condemn ourselves by staying away from the light. In both cases, the point in both stories and the link between them is the saving action of God, as well as God's intention to save not just the select few, but rather everyone who looks upon the bronze serpent. And in John, the language is, for God so loved the world, not just some of the world. In fact, the world is a limited view in our perspective. The actual translation, the actual Greek word there is cosmos, the whole, the whole of creation. The allusion from the passage from John points to another Hebrew story that is very difficult for us to hear. When Jesus refer- says that God gave the only begotten one his only son, is to point to the harrowing, blood-curdling story of Abraham and the sacrifice of his son, Isaac. This is the story, as you know, in which God calls on Abraham to give his only son, his one and only son, as a burnt offering to God. Now, I know you and I don't think of God in this way. This is people trying to work out who God is and how God works in their world. And as it turns out, in the story at least, this is a divine test to see whether Abraham's fidelity to God is genuine or driven by self-interest. Remember that God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And so to to execute Isaac would mean that God's promise was not real. God is asking, in effect, are you truly devoted to me or merely to the promise of a great legacy? The instruction to sacrifice Isaac tests the nature of Abraham's devotion, and in the end... We can all breathe deeply. The whole cosmos can breathe deeply because Abraham's devotion is expressed and the ordeal demonstrates that his devotion is extravagant and true. And in so referencing this story, Jesus is pointing to God whose devotion and faithfulness to humankind is likewise extravagant and true. And that Jesus' mission, his life, death, and resurrection needs to be understood in that light. Now, listen, this is a 
complex communication with Nicodemus. And it's complex because Nicodemus is an educated Pharisee, would know all these stories, would know all these references. Of course, we also get a, an amazing story of the role of the cross and Jesus' coming crucifixion. Jesus' phrase lifted up points to how Moses lifted up the bronze serpent and how Jesus will be lifted up on the cross. And at the same time, the phrase also references and alludes to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. But there's no getting around this story. It is obviously an anticipation of Jesus' trial and crucifixion and death. Something no one would have expected to happen to the only begotten one of God. The story is full of sorrow, palpable. Of course, we are not immune from the blues moan even today. I don't know if you heard about it, but an article came out in the Atlantic Monthly this week that proclaims America without God. The writer Shadi Hamid states, as Christianity holds as Christianity's hold in particular has weakened ideological intensity and fragmentation have arisen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion looks like now in America. And within state legislatures, they are scrambling to pass laws at a breakneck speed that deprive trans people of civil rights, that take away the rights of women to choose pregnancy and poor women to even get medical care, and the move to make sure that poor women, the poor women, blacks, and other people of color do not have the right to vote. All in the name of Jesus! I think you and I can join the gospel blues moan. Too often we have distorted the key relationship between God and the people. We render the verse, God so loved the world, not as a gospel, but rather as an anti-gospel. A proclamation not of love and invitation, but of contempt and exclusion. In other words, this verse presents us with an excellent opportunity to contemplate what Christian good news really means. As the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III reminds us, the blues sings that all is not right in the world and holds a mirror up for us to see and reflect on that truth, much as Moses held up the serpent and much as Jesus was held up on the cross for us to see. Of course, that is not where the blues or God will leave us. And here's why. Above all, the reference to the story from Numbers about the serpents highlights God's character as the one who saves, even and especially in the face of rebellion and sin. God could have left them out there in the wilderness being bitten up by snakes, but didn't. 
The Israelites had self-destructively turned against God, but when they asked for deliverance, God graciously delivers them. We have to remember also, as I said, that Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And these two illusions underscore God's desire to save people, as in the story of the serpent and in the story of God's incredible and extraordinary fidelity and devotion to humankind by giving the only begotten one. This amazing understanding of the cross prevails. It is distinct from substitutionary atonement, which says that Jesus absorbs punishment on our behalf. And it is different from Christus Victor, the theory that Jesus conquers the powers of death. While God could have saved the Israelites by having them look at anything at all, the chosen remedy is to look upon the very thing that is killing them. Even in the midst of healing and restoration, there are two things. The deadly self-destructive nature of sin and brokenness and God's gracious transformation of us, even the worst of us. Even when we make the worst, that is how Good Friday got its name, after all. When God took the worst of us and made the best for us. The Christian cross plays this dual role, reminding us first of the many ways we turn against God and each other with violence and betrayal, and second, of this transforming forgiveness and deliverance. So, in what ways does God love the world, the cosmos? In astonishing ways. My friends, that is something to shout about. So considering all this, and there's still more, I mean, there's still so much more in this passage, but consider, and I won't go on any longer, but even considering all this, I think we need to reconsider the question the young man asked me so long ago. The question is not, are you saved? Truly, the saving work of God, as exhibited in this passage of Scripture, has always and forever been at work in the world, for the cosmos and for all the people, not some of the people, all the people. Maybe the other question is closer. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Now, I know this this really makes a lot of um, progressive and liberal Christians have a visceral jolt. But I want to say it in a way that maybe we can hear it. Perhaps the question might be rendered. Are you prepared to accept the reality of God's gracious and unending love for you, even you, as revealed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? I saw that young man at Texas A&M University again the next fall. It was before fish camp that he had spent the summer before in a program in New York City caring for the 
hungry and homeless and marginalized. The spring was now gone from his step, as was the surety of the look in his eyes. And I was sad for that. But I was also hopeful that perhaps his encounter with those whom God calls the anavim, the poor ones, and whom God clearly loves, had had an impact on his heart and soul and mind. I was hopeful that somehow, some way, he had encountered that expansive, gracious love of God. So you see, even in the midst of the facing the reality of the gospel blues moan, we can have the gospel blues shout. In the blues, there is always a turn toward hope. And Otis Moss III says, there is also an auditory neurological brainstem response. Hearing words and sounds can change the way we view things. Negative words raise stress and cortisol in us. Positive words raise hope and endorphins. There was actually a study at Duke University. They kept finding that certain words raised endorphins, but one word in particular, that word was Jesus. Every time they said Jesus, all of a sudden, even folk who didn't believe in Jesus felt better from hearing the word. Jesus. Because speech is power. And Jesus spoke to Nicodemus as the embodiment of God. And so speaks to you and me today. Even today. My friends, That's worth shouting about. Amen.